In your Bibles this morning, we're in John chapter 14 again. Augustine said famously, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless till they rest in you. Imagine what it would have been like to have been one of Jesus' closest disciples, to look into the eyes of a fellow human being and come to the conviction that you were looking into the very face of God. Jesus the Messiah was the virgin-born son that Isaiah prophesied would be called Emmanuel. With us, God. As the ministry of Jesus expanded and his teaching became clear, the twelve, or should we say the eleven, since Judas turned away and betrayed him, the twelve were all convinced that this was indeed the promised Savior King, the offspring of the woman that God had promised in the Garden of Eden would one day crush the serpent's head. They eagerly anticipated His making Himself known to the world and inaugurating His eternal kingdom, returning to the throne of David, His ancestral father. But of late... Nothing like that was coming to pass like they expected. Instead, Jesus is talking of leaving them behind. He predicts his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, suffering and scourging, and then death by crucifixion. They were devastated, hopes crushed, fear spiking, doubt ripping at their faith. How could they ever survive without Him? Alienation from God had thrown the human race into darkness and death. And now, after finding the one who could bring us back to Eden, the Eden of the closeness of God, it seemed to be happening all over again. They had found Jesus, and now they're going to lose Him. Paul says to newly converted Greek Christians in Ephesus, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the body politic of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. To be without God is to be without hope. But now... He continues, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's the answer. It's paradoxical. Jesus was leaving his disciples to head to the cross. What he would do there would forever break down the barrier between them and God. It is the greatest paradox, the greatest seeming contradiction of history. Jesus leaving them to be crucified and rise again was the way that he would establish unbreakable fellowship between them and himself forever. He teaches them these truths in our text this morning in John 14, 15 to 24, if you'll follow with me as I read. If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Three times Jesus highlights the strategic importance of his commands and his words. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. But on this strategic basis, this foundation, Jesus would be with us, God would be with us, Father, Son, and Spirit. We learn in verses 15 through 17, that means He would give us the gift of divine truth through the Spirit. In verses 18 through 20, He would give us the gift of divine life through the Son. And then verses 21 and 24, the gift of divine love, both Father and Son. Consider with me first what Jesus teaches us in verses 15 through 17, the gift of divine truth. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Love for Jesus expresses itself in treasuring, in guarding, in obeying His commandments. If you love someone, you're happy to do what they desire, especially if that person you love is none other than the perfect God-man, the loving Savior, the Good Shepherd, the best person that ever walked the planet. If you love Jesus, it makes no sense that you would deliberately resist what He commands. Jesus explains that there is huge reward for this kind of obedient love for Him. He will ask the Father to send them another helper, another one of the same kind, like Jesus, called alongside to comfort, to encourage, to exhort, to be their advocate. 
the spirit of truth would be with them forever, never, ever to be torn away from them. When you're trying to navigate the difficult path of life, you and I, we need the clarity of truth, something on which we can utterly rely, kind of like the the points of the compass so that you know what direction you're going. Up to this time, Jesus has provided that certainty for them. I mean, think about it. Think what it would be like to have Jesus at your shoulder to to tell you what's true and what's not and to guide you down the path. But now he's heading to the cross and to the grave and ultimately back to heaven with the Father. His promise is that the truth of God, despite his going back to the Father, the truth of God will remain with them in the person of the Holy Spirit whom the Father would send at the request of the Son. Among other tasks, the Holy Spirit was the divine agent through whom the prophets spoke. He would guarantee the reliability of the prophets and of the apostles. He would convince people, Jesus will go on to teach in chapter 16, he would convince people of the the reliability of the gospel that they would proclaim. The world has always been full of lies. All you have to do is go to some ancient stela, some ancient stone where some ancient king brags about his exploits to know that fake news was just as common then as it is now. The world has always been full of lies with a thousand voices vying to be heard and believed, and you can listen to just about all of them with just pulling out your phone. Who knows what truth is? I mean, it's frustrating. You try to do a little research, and you're not sure that what you found is actually what's so. It seems like half the time it's marketing some miracle product, right? And um, you just don't know what to believe. Well, Pilate asked that very question at the trial of Jesus. You know, what is truth? With all the fake news, all the hidden agendas, all the crafted messaging and marketing, all the artificial fabrications and politicking, all the opinions and worldviews, how can we ever find truth? I mean, is there anything we can bank on and, and live life by it and know we're on the right path? Because when you're left alone and you don't even know what's true anymore, you're in a terribly dark place. Well, Jesus promised, I'm not going to leave you wondering that way. The Father will send you the gift of the Spirit of truth. And the world can't receive the Spirit because the world rejects Jesus. And the world scoffs at His commands. The world in rebellion against God would rather preserve its imagined self-rule than submit to God for any reason, even if it means demonizing the perfect human being, Jesus Christ, they'd rather live a life based on lies than have to bow the knee to the truth of God. They pour everything into material things they can see and touch as if the unseen spiritual realm is completely non-existent, despite the fact that they know it's there. Else, who would ever talk of love or of courage or of logic or of wisdom? 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14, Paul explains, we have received not the spirit of the world, 
but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. They have spiritual life. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. You know, it's not that the words of Scripture are some kind of, of magic language that, that a common person couldn't understand. It's that we understand the words, but we, we don't want to receive those words. We, it seems foolishness. It doesn't seem wise to turn over your life to somebody else instead of being your own self-ruler. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the one who loves Jesus, who believes in him, and therefore obeys his commands and wants to do so, that person knows the Spirit and his power. He has been at work among God's people over the centuries, right to the day that Jesus is talking to the disciples. The Spirit was not an unknown topic. But on the day of Pentecost, he would come to dwell within every true believer, transforming that believer from the inside out. Romans 8, 5 through 9 talks about this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. The flesh is that rebel part of you that doesn't want to submit to the law of God. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he goes on to say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, if you've heard the words of Jesus, you've heard the commands of Jesus, you've heard the teaching of Jesus, and you say, yes, I believe that. Yes, I treasure that. I love that. I keep that. I want to live by that. Then that faith that unites you to Jesus is what gives you then the Spirit of God, for He gives the Spirit to those who believe in Him. So that raises the question for us, what percentage of your life are you basing on truth from the Spirit of God, such as the commandments of Jesus? Now, this morning we talked about earlier in Sunday school, the, the happy man, the blessed man, is the one who meditates day and night on the law of God, the instruction of God. And that helps that law of God, that input from God, that wisdom, that truth from God permeate every part of life. The tendency is for us to compartmentalize our lives, or we kind of tuck, tuck God in the corner. You know, we, we look at a few verses or whatever, and then we live life just like we never knew God. So what percentage of your life are you basing on truth and the Spirit of God? And what, what common lies 
do people believe today in place of yielding to truth from God? You know, what is it about the truth from God that is so repugnant, that that makes them stiff-arm it? And then in your desire to feel the presence of God, what are you doing to focus on and obey what God has revealed in His Word? Sometimes you hear people complain, well, I just don't feel God's very close, and, and certainly our feelings about the closeness of God fluctuate. They can be fickle as the wind. Sometimes we feel tremendously alone. Sometimes God feels super close. But I know this, that if, if you're not in the Word, if you're not keeping the commands of Christ, if you're not treasuring them, if you're not focused there, there, there's no way you're going to regularly feel the presence of God because that's how he reveals himself. That's what the Spirit uses. It's it's not just some mystical thing when you come to the garden alone. It's, it's, you know, because the dew is on the roses. It's, look, I come to the Word and I let God speak to me. And words come from a person. And those words promise me love and life and give me direction in life. So we have the gift of divine truth. And this is something that that Christ really purchased for us at the cross. And that he gave to us as he went to heaven. The disciples are having their Lord the visible presence of Jesus ripped from them, but in his place would come another comforter, someone else to come alongside the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, to keep them on track even when Jesus was gone. The second thing that Jesus promises them is the gift of divine love. In verses 18 to 20, I will not leave you as orphans. Something sad about a a fatherless, a motherless child left to fend for himself or herself. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Jesus would live on. This was not the end. This was not the disaster that they thought was about to break on them. Jesus would come to them after his resurrection. He would teach them some 40 days. He would come to them. Jesus would come to them through the person of the Holy Spirit after his ascension. And Jesus will come to them at the end of the age when he returns to receive his own people to himself. The world at large would not enjoy these privileges, but his disciples would. And how is it that that they could enjoy these? Because Jesus would break the power of death by rising from the dead. It would no longer, the grave would no longer be a dead end It would be a doorway. It would be a doorway to everlasting life. He would guarantee their own resurrection from the dead, everyone whose faith is in him. And he proved that death could be beat, for he himself rose from the dead as one of the best established historical facts of human history. It would stand up in any court of law. 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes about it some 25 years after it happened. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? See, they had bought into a Greek way of thought that the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good, and so once you're released from the body, then so be it, you're free. Just no. God is going to rescue not just your soul. He's going to rescue your body. You are you, and you are both physical as well as spiritual. And God's going to save all of you, every part of you, your holistic being. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, and that was a philosophical lie, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, it's empty, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Jesus, fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, they've died here physically, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because it costs something to follow Jesus. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits are the first part of the harvest, the sample and guarantee of the full harvest to come. So Jesus' resurrection opens the way for us to have a living connection to Himself and to the Father. He's alive, so now the relationship can continue. He's alive, so those who trust in Him will be made alive as well. As a member of the triune God, He is in the Father. As believers in Christ, we are in Him. We enjoy the divine life that is His, an undying life. He is our representative and our advocate with the Father. We enter inheritance that is His. So our connection to Him is everything, but beyond that, He is in us. His life power flows through us even while we're on earth. And that's why we see Jesus in His followers. They take on more and more over time his character in the way that they live life because his vitality is energizing to be fruitful, energizing them to be fruitful that way. It's what we call the fruit of the Spirit, the love and the joy and the peace and the, the long-suffering and the gentleness and the faith and the meekness and the self-control. These things are, are Christ-like qualities that the Spirit of God grows in people that have life. See, you, you can memorize a bunch of verses, you can go work at a church or a Christian school, you can, you can add a lot of to-dos to your to-do list, and, and you can cancel out a lot of don'ts from your don't list. None of that saves you, none of that changes you, but the life of God in you, that changes you. That makes you different. 
So you, that, that's why a person can be working as a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher in church and behave like the devil. Because that doesn't give you life. What gives you life is that you belong to Jesus, that he's in you, that you have life from him. And people that have life from him look like him. They behave like him. We, we learn what's, what's right and wrong by, by looking at Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself said what? Sum up all the law and the prophets, all the commands, and it come down to this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul explains, love does no harm to a neighbor. Everything that's wrong for you to do does harm to people, does harm to yourself. Well, somebody that's loving God and loving others doesn't intentionally do harm. And so, as we have God's life in us, we become more and more those who bring benefit to other people. More and more those who show love to them. And when we violate that love, we feel the pangs of conscience and we want to confess it. We want to make it right and we want to get back on track. Paul explains it in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, so my sins are nailed there. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, while I'm still in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ is going to the cross. He's leaving his disciples, but, but it's not the end of the line. He's going to be alive again, and his life will also flow into them and give them life for their entire earthly journey. So if you are a professing believer this morning, what signs of divine life can others observe in your life? I mean, you know, they made a bracelet of it. What would Jesus do? And, and we can joke about that, but, but the reality is, what would Jesus do? And does it look like anything like what you'd do? What, what did Jesus do? Who was Jesus? What is he like? And is there anything about my life that reminds people of him? What are you experiencing that comes from the life of Jesus in you? I mean, do you sense that his life is in you? Do, you? do you see him, for instance, bringing conviction to your heart when you do something wrong, even before somebody else is on your case about it? Do you feel the conviction of the Spirit? Do you find yourself drawn to want to make that right? Do you find yourself hungering for reestablishing the closeness with God? Do you feel the life of Jesus in you as you see needs around you and, and compassion wells up in you and you say, I've got to do something about that? Do you, do you feel the life of Jesus in you when, when you see lies bandied about and you say, no, these people need the truth of the gospel. Let me share it with you. Are, are your hands at Jesus' commands, are your eyes at his command, is your mouth at his command, are, are you living life as Jesus would live your life. And then, given what Jesus says here, why is it, why is a true Christian never really alone in the world? 
You know, I think loneliness is part of the human condition. And there's different ways that we try to, to offset it. We're here together encouraging one another because it's lonely to try to live life, even for Christ, just on our own. We need one another. We, we treasure the close relationships of love, a husband and wife or parents and children. We, we like the feeling of belonging and knowing that somebody else cares about us. But the reality is that as you go through life, it's a, it's a series of goodbyes. Your, your children grow up and move out. Maybe move away. Your spouse dies. Your friends die. You grow old. Everything around you is changing and you find yourself a stranger on the earth that once seemed like home. And it can feel tremendously alone. And then you might have somebody close to you. It might be your spouse. It might be a very close friend. But, but you will find in the course of time that there's some things about you that they don't understand and they never will. That there's, some, there's a sense in which you are alone, that nobody actually knows you, but Jesus knows you. God knows you. He knew you before you even existed. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And if you belong to him, even when you can't feel him close by, he is with you. He's with you. And when you're going through the worst of times, the times that rock your world and, and tear at your soul, if, if you can hold on to the conviction that Jesus is actually there with you, and the beautiful thing is he often gives you little hints that he is. He often brings into your life these little indications that he's fully aware of what's going on. If you know he's there, that he's with you, you can make it. You can make it. I mean, think about it. You and God make a majority in any battle. In fact, he doesn't even need you. He can do all the fighting on his own, right? So just that he's there. And, and this is one of the beautiful things about over the, over the course of life. You get, you get to see God lift the cover off every now and then and show you how much he can do without any of your help but how much he can do because of his great love for you. He is with you, the gift of divine life. And then we're already knocking on the door of this, the gift of divine love. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Jesus points us to the key to this closeness with him. Having his commandments preserved in the New Testament, are we treasuring them? Are we obeying them out of love for Jesus? Because if you love Jesus, as evidenced by your high regard for his commandments, 
God the Father loves you. It's not that you're earning His love. It's that that love is there. And Jesus, God's love, God's Son loves you. You know, I was thinking about this. It's one thing to say we love Jesus. I mean, who shouldn't love Jesus? He's, he's deserving of our love. He's perfect. But it's astounding that God the Father loves us, loves us, and that God the Son loves us. And we're not talking about just a one-time expression of it at the cross. We're talking about an ongoing expression of this. And look at the personal way that Jesus puts it. He puts it in the, the singular. He reduces it to the individual. He says, you know, I will love him. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him. I mean, it's easier for us to believe that God loves us generally. Like, yeah, God loves all his children. You know, like a stadium full of people. It's easier for us to believe that, but to know he loves us individually and personally. You know, the one who knows us best loves us most. That's mind-blowing. It's humbling and at the same time exhilarating. If God is for you in this way, who can be against you? Judas, not Iscariot, asked Jesus how he'd reveal himself to his disciples and not to the world. And Maybe he was thinking of the day when every tongue will confess and every knee bow. It's in heaven and on earth. But Jesus is addressing the interim time between his first and second coming. During that time, he will make himself known to his followers and not to the world. The gospel will go to every ethnicity in, in, in all the world, but not everyone will receive it. Those who reject it cannot experience fellowship with Jesus or with God the Father. They cannot understand the things of the Spirit. But those who do believe, who love Jesus and keep His Word and His words, and that's broader than just His commands. You notice He shifted to word and words. So we're talking not just about where He's given us commands, but just all the insights, all the instruction um, everything he said and taught, we treasure because we love him. Well, God loves those people. The Father and the Son will come to them and make his home with them even during their earthly journey. I mean, one day we will be at home with God. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But Jesus is saying here, till then, God will make his home with us. We can't go to him yet, so he comes to us. God with us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's an extraordinary privilege, and it's a great pleasure. A partial recovery of the paradise that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden before their sin marred their world and marred themselves and their descendants. One day the recovery will be complete when sin and suffering and death are long forgotten. But for now, God himself is with us and will be all the days, even to the consummation of the age. That's why John will write in his first epistle, that which we have seen and heard 
we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. You may share with us. You may have the same experience with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So think about the lines of connection. We have a connection with the apostles who knew Jesus firsthand. We share their experience. And because of their testimony that we believe, we now also have a shared experience with God the Father and God the Son. And John goes on to say, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Your joy, our joy, your joy and our joy together. It's complete, it's made full because we're finally united to God. So how convinced are you of the love of God the Father and the love of God the Son for you personally? personally. And what do you think may be standing in the way of your faith in and perception of His love? I mean, if you don't feel that, if you don't really believe that at your core, then what's in the way? Is there something in the way? Is there, is there something you're holding back from Him? If there, is there some way you're resisting Him? Because remember, the key to all this is you're treasuring His commandments and His Word, and you're letting that flow into you. So when do you give yourself to meditating on the Word and the words of Christ? And how could you make His Word more significant in your life? You know, the times that I have felt most strongly the presence of God, those times are also the times when the the Word of God just comes alive and, and where I hunger for and long for and feast on it. The gospel, the good news, is all about recovering what we lost in Eden. That close, loving communion with God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Believing the gospel and living it rests on how valuable you count Christ's commands and words to be. So how could your life be more and more the story of God with you, His truth, His life, His love, all yours now and forever. The gift of divine truth, the gift of divine life, the gift of divine love, God with us, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's pray. Oh God, we Thank you for these recorded words of Jesus and the insight that it gives us into living life in His presence. We find ourselves to some degree envying those early disciples because they got to walk with Jesus in the flesh. And sometimes we feel far removed. So, Lord, I pray that you would open to us through your word and through your commands, through your love and through our love for you, you would open to us a life of communion with God. May those who come to know us see that we are those who walk with God, that God is with us, his truth, his life, His love. Lord, make that the story of our lives, we pray.
In Christ's name, amen.